Menu Feed, a bi-weekly podcast from Winsight Media's two food service brands, Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Editor covering Menu, Food, and Drink for both brands. Today I'm chatting with Michael P. Hoffman, co-author of the book Our Changing Menu and Professor Emeritus at Cornell University. We talk about how climate change is negatively impacting some of our favorite foods and beverages, menu items that restaurants and food service venues serve every day, like sushi, salads, coffee, and cocktails. While a thread of doom and gloom runs through our conversation, there is hope for the future. The antidote is action, says Mike, and farmers, scientists, and operators all have to work together to change the outcome. Welcome, Mike. Thanks so much for joining me today. Glad to be here, Pat. Thank you. So we're going to talk about climate change and its impact on the food supply, uh, which is a really timely topic for a lot of our listeners. So let's start by um, talking about what are the five food and beverages that are most impacted by climate change, in your opinion? Well, unfortunately, it's one or two that I love a great deal. Uh, coffee, I think that's been in the press a lot, um, is at high risk from some new pests that love the new conditions, let alone just the climate changing where it doesn't fall, the rain doesn't fall where it used to and the temperatures are warmer, it just the crop is sensitive. The next one, which I also don't like to talk about, is chocolate, mm. most of which, like 40 or 50%, comes from West Africa. And the conditions there are changing, making it more difficult for uh, the farmers there to produce cacao. There are many others. We actually did a survey where we had respondents compare coffee, chocolate, beer, and wine, and they just really were worried about the first two. And I was surprised because I like my wine. Mm. But I'll put it on my list because in particular in California, the high temperatures affect the wine grapes. It changes the acidity, the flavors, the aroma. So I think in future years, we will have to get used to new types of wines. Yeah, I also heard that it'll be grown in more states that really haven't grown wine grapes before. Oh yeah, I mean, the the UK is like starting to celebrate wine production and there's, there's a lot of movement in Europe of vineyards north yeah um, it's not that easy because oh yeah great but maybe you realize the said the city of saddle is there you can't grow grapes there even though it's the greatest place to grow grapes i think there's some other subtle ones i'm just gonna pick rice it's a favorite of mine and many others uh ah, i'll be more specific sushi rice 99 percent of it is grown in california and with this ongoing drought Uh, 99% of what we consume in the U.S. is grown in California. With this ongoing drought, that's obviously compromising, you know, production. Uh, Globally, the nutritional quality of rice is slowly declining as uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is getting higher. It's affecting plants in really strange ways. Mm. I think there might be some spices and herbs that I love, but most of those, many of those come from India. In Asia, conditions are changing there, um, affecting the farmers that are producing it. So there, there's a lot of things. It does. It isn't hard to find your favorite and what's happening to it. Yeah, it sounds a little scary. 
how is climate change affecting the cocktail list? Because that's something a lot of restaurateurs are concerned about. And I know that, you know, the grains and other ingredients grown for spirits are being impacted as well. I've got a kind of a humorous story that I like to share when I talk about, say, bourbon and scotch. Realize that these are aged out of doors in oak barrels. They're not literally out of doors. There may be a roof over the top. But you want that nighttime, daytime temperature so that the scotch goes into the oak and then comes out of the oak and picks up the oak, oakiness. Mm -hmm. By volume, they lose about 2% a year currently. It just evaporates through the oak. And for scotch, that amounts to 29 million gallons a year. Wow. That makes me worried. But that's been going on forever. Now, just it's warming. So clearly more and more will be lost by what's called the angel share. They, they used to, they didn't understand why they were losing scotch. And they just thought, well, this, the angel is thanking them and taking a share. But in fact, it's evaporation. Right. Well, let's go to beer and thinking of hops. It's not a cocktail, but let's look at beer in the Pacific Northwest uh, hops production in particular, because conditions there are getting hotter and drier. Less water being stored as snow in the mountains, so it's not available for irrigation in the summertime when you really need it. So that core sort of production that gives us that sort of bitterness and that special flavor in beer. I'm trying to think of some others. I mean, gin is my favorite. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm slowly moved to bourbon. But anyway, gin, across brands, they use about 150 botanicals to give it its unique flavor, depending on the brand. Right. You look at that list, and you can quickly find ones that are in trouble. You know, maybe they're kind of unusual and picked at some high altitude in the mountains. Well, everything's changing. The plants are moving up slope, and the weeds are better than some of these special herbs and spices that are used in, in gin, for example. So those will be lost. They're certainly changed in time, and that will affect gin. But that's not many people realize that that industry depends on all of these special herbs and spices for the for gin. So that's yeah, that's kind of a concern to me. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they'll have to, you know, the mixologists will have to come up with some new combos for cocktails. I think I think we'll be okay there. <laughs> <laughs> Now, California, I mean, that's been in the news all summer because of wildfires and drought and heat waves affecting everything that's grown there, which is a lot, vegetables and nuts and olive oil and all the produce that goes into the salad bowl. So what is happening with these crops? Are these really threatened or how are we going to adapt the menu when this happens? Well, you're right. Um we, the U.S., gets about a quarter of its food from California. They're also the large, the biggest state in overall production, but a lot of that is also exported. Mm -hmm. But uh, water is critical. And so many of these crops are irrigated. I saw a report recently where uh, almond trees, for example, are just being, the older orchards, which are less productive, are just being torn out. Mm -hmm. It is a water-intensive crop. And farmers are shifting to things, crops that aren't quite so water dependent. Uh, that's one example. 
rice, I already mentioned sushi rice. Well, in general, you've got to flood the patties. So production and yields are going down in rice. So, I mean, there's 400 different commodities coming out of California and it doesn't take much imagination to see how they're being affected across, you know, all these things that we enjoy. There's also a lot of rangeland in California. And for those of us who maybe enjoy a little bit of red meat on occasion, uh, droughts are pretty challenging for rangelands. And cattle have, simply don't get the nutrients they need or they may have to be fed by purchase feed instead of out on the range, so to speak. A lot of things. That's, and it's this mega drought that frankly was a natural drought that started several years ago but it's been made much worse by climate change. Mm. I'm not quite sure when it's going to come to an end. So the long-term, long next several years, you know, I would, I, I think all of us should be pretty concerned about what's happening out west in California. Especially salad. I mean, salads are such a huge part of the restaurant industry now with all these fast casuals popping up that are based on salads and bowls right. and that kind of thing. Right. So also, also, you know, bear in mind that uh, this is a business. So farmers are doing what they can. Like in some of the tree crops, they use very uh, targeted irrigation systems. So it just goes to the roots of the tree instead of in between the trees. And there's something called, you know, there's a little tube that runs down the row, say it could be lettuce or something else. And it just drips, drips carefully right next to the plant. So there's very little evaporation. You're not, again, watering any of the soil that doesn't need water. So farmers are doing their best also to simply stay in business. I also heard that sriracha was in trouble because the red chili peppers in Mexico were not growing properly. And there, were, there was very small crop because of and they blamed it on climate change as well. Yeah, that's, that's just such a good example. But on the flip side, hot peppers actually get hotter with climate change. Wow, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I think that's related to carbon dioxide or higher temperatures, but they actually get a little more potent with climate change. So for some, that may be a good thing. Yeah, we better watch out, though. <laughs> <laughs> and how is uh, climate change affecting the center of the plate protein choice? You mentioned a little bit about the cattle, but how about chicken and seafood? Are they under stress, too? Well, let's just go to chicken. Uh, in the U.S., most are raised in essentially buildings where the temperature is somewhat controlled. And that would apply to egg production as well. Not all, but most. Mm -hmm. So there they can control those kind of exterior conditions of climate change, heat waves, et cetera, storms, and so on. But chicken is probably okay, but the cost of feed is going up. Again, because of storms and droughts that provide the feed for the chickens, the turkeys, whatever, are raised that way. The other options, just bear in mind that the issue with beef is it comes from a ruminant. And in the process of digestion, that animal, whether it's a cow or a head of beef, produces methane and they belch it. And that's that's the big concern with red meat. So in contrast, if you look at pork, they don't have that digestive system. Mm -hmm. Got other issues. So overall impact of pork compared to beef, you know, pork is actually a better choice. Mm. If you're looking at greenhouse gas emissions. 
Fish is, well, I'll tell a fish story. As a family, all the males, we get together every year in northern Wisconsin and fish on a lake. And there's a prize fish everyone's after, and it's declining. Mm. And the reason is the young of that species feed in the shallow waters at the edge of the lakes. But that water is getting warmer. The little fish of the species don't do as well, and the predators do better. So therefore, you don't, when you're fishing for the big ones in the, in the lake, they're not there because the progeny just aren't succeeding in the shallows like they used to. In the oceans, there are some fundamental changes going on that are very concerning, and that is as the oceans warm, the water just gets more stratified. So there's a warm layer and then stratification and cooler. But what's in the upper layer are little floating plants called phytoplankton. And what normally would happen, the nutrients would upwell from deep in the ocean to feed these plants. But because of stratification, that nutrient doesn't get up. And that's like, think of plants on land that we all depend on. Well, that's where it all starts in the oceans. That's kind of a big concern that affects the entire food chain. But also populations of fish are moving. They're going to go where the right temperature, the oceans are the right temperature. Sometimes they're going deeper because, again, it's cooler. So the oceans, the best we can do to maintain uh, seafood is to, uh, well, minimize climate change, especially mm -hmm. these emissions, which are absorbed by the oceans, which have all kinds of effects on, you name it, just about everything is affected through the ocean becoming slightly more acidic, making it difficult for those creatures that create a shell um, they're challenged because the water is more acidic. And then you've got the warming effect. The other thing is just overall better management of global fishing would help sustain those populations. But there's a lot going on in the oceans. Oh, and I'll finish with one last thing. I hope you like squid and octopus because they are really thriving in the warmer waters. I like them. <laughs> they're probably going to get more common on menus in general as opposed to some of our staple fish that we now have. Interesting. I know that a lot of mussels and clams now are, or oysters are also farmed. And so those are getting a little more plentiful because they can kind of regulate where they put them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's solutions. Exactly. I'm curious about your fish story though. Let's go back to that for a minute. What, what type of fish is it? Uh, <laughs> the walleye. Oh yeah. That's a really good fish. I lived in the Midwest for a while and yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about plant-based diets and plant-forward diets. I know, you know, a lot of people think that by eating some of the commercially produced plant-based burgers and sausages and even seafood now that it's helping with climate change. And I don't really know the scientific background of this, but I just wanted to ask you whether these produce so much greenhouse gases during the production that it is really negating the effect of having a plant-based burger. In general, the let's call them meat alternatives mm -hmm. are far better for the climate because in fact, they do have a lot of times production requires less water than feeding an animal. Uh, you're not using land to grow a crop or for grazing for an animal. So 
overall, they're better, uh, especially when you compare them against a ruminant, that, like a, a beef cattle, mm-hmm. you know, a beef animal. So uh, overall, they're better. But I, I just want to also mention that our approach to red meat and its consumption is treated as a delicacy, not a staple, like in some kind of like the rest of the world. Right. Approach it. That would be a huge advancement. And I'm not going to tell people not to eat red meat because I do on occasion. Mm-hmm. But it's generally sort of an added thing to a pasta dish. It's not, you know, I haven't seen a steak for decades. Well, I've seen a steak, but I haven't eaten one for a long time. Right. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, I, you know, it seems to me uh, that with more of these meat alternatives coming out that the production of them will, you know, will... It, I guess the carbon footprint of them is seems large to me when you increase the expand the number that are coming out. And it seems like I've you know, I went to the restaurant show this year and there were every other booth practically had a plant based meat alternative. So it it's really becoming widespread across you know the food industry. Well, I mean, there are just there's a whole range of these alternatives. I mean, you can get a bean burger. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, for sure. yeah. that's coming straight, you know, from a plant and somehow made into a burger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's that range. And then all the way to those that are made more, you know, with artificial processes. Right. No, the bean burgers and the lentil burgers and those kinds of things are, right. are very appealing. And that isn't what people are gravitating towards. Anyway, we will change the subject. <laughs> so as far as farmers and the agriculture industry, what kinds of tactics or techniques can they use to remedy the situation? You mentioned something about climate smart farming in your book, which I found really intriguing. So let's talk a little bit about that. Well, I want to give that climate smart farming or agriculture a little perspective. So I talked about it in front of a group of farmers and afterwards one came up and said, Mike, you can use the acronym CSF for CSA, Climate Smart Farming. He said, um, now Mike, that's common sense farming because farmers are always, um, they need to stay in business. So if they see a problem, they're going to make a change. So, you know, a lot of farmers have, and, and now this is expanding, they're using what are called cover crops. It's essentially, let's say you have corn during the summer, but rather than leaving that cornfield bare all winter, you may actually leave the corn stubble after you've harvested the corn on the ground and plant between the rows a, well, a crop. Mm-hmm. That could actually simply be turned back into the soil in the spring, because then you're putting nutrients and organic matter back into the soil but you're also holding that soil in place all winter long. So it doesn't get washed away. Your, you know, your soil quality is um, maintained and you're capturing carbon. You're actually sequestering carbon. The soil is an amazing place for that to happen. That's one example. Um, precision agriculture is where they're simply using very sophisticated GPS systems like we use to get from point A to point B in our car. But they can now, you know, plant very precisely fertilizer and seed in a row, and they can actually adjust it as they're going across the field 
to the needs of the soil. So if there's a place in the soil where, because it's already been measured and documented, it needs a little more fertilizer, it automatically gets a little more fertilizer. Where the soil is better, it backs off on that. So it's extremely efficient. And having worked with people or farmers who do this, they also say it really makes life a lot easier because you basically get the tractor lined up and it just goes. You sit there, but it, but the rows are precise. They're going to be you know lined up perfectly. Because as a farm kid, once in a while I did this, you'd all of a sudden fall asleep or something, and you're making rows on top of rows. That's not a good thing. But the bottom line is efficient use of resources. Farmers are also, there's actually quite a bit of renewable energy being produced on farms through solar. And some of that is, you know, being sold to local communities, et cetera. But that's a good thing. They're trying to conserve energy on farms. There's a number of other approaches in climate smart farming. Soil is key. I think the word is you want soil, the best of health, a healthy soil. That's just absolutely key. So I think, oh, um, another one is diversify. Mm -hmm. If you can, where it's feasible, if you've only got two crops on your farm and you get with a storm and it wipes out one, you've potentially lost half your income. But if you've got 10 crops and you lose a couple, well, you've still got the remaining eight for an income. So that's another thing that's getting far more interest, again, where that is feasible. That might be pretty difficult for, you know, a Nebraska corn farmer, but it's happening. Let's talk a little bit about optimism. It sounds like there's a lot of doom and gloom, you know, as far as climate change goes. I mean, you you gave us some examples of really practical solutions that can make us feel a little optimistic. Are there other ways we could be optimistic about the future if we start now? Absolutely. I can't take away from the threat climate change poses us. That's the data. And also climate change, that climate is gonna to continue to change. Our goal now is to stabilize the system so we minimize you know, the risk in the future. But uh, all of us, if you're speaking broadly and what we can do as individuals, I would put at the top of the list to get informed and understand what's going on, understand um, what the, the science of climate change. It's not that difficult. You know, one example is we live in this little layer on the surface of the planet that's only seven miles high. But that's where all the action is. And most people don't realize that. You think, well, greenhouse gases, they just go up and keep going. They don't. You know, what are the greenhouse gases? What do they do? Where do they come from? But the bottom line, being come informed so then you as an individual can make informed decisions about how maybe you can affect policy or you can talk to your neighbor or whatever, which leads to number two, and that is talk about climate change. In the U.S., about two-thirds of us rarely talk about it, but it's actually the way to get to start addressing climate change is simply talk about it. And some recent research shows that, and this blew me away, we all think, well, you know, the other people don't understand what's going on. They're not worried. But they did a survey and they found out that, well, in fact, most are, but nobody talks about it. You know, so let's start the conversation. So there's hope, you know, it's, it's talking about it. It's, oh, and yes, the story we tell is about food and kind of keeping food on the plate or on the menu, et cetera. 
but also we should all just step back and look at our own lifestyle. I mean, do we need to drive as much, fly as much, buy as much? We all have a lot of stuff. And is that really necessary? Uh, there's a number of things that we can all do. And when people do fall into despair, and I do, the answer is do something. Sounds Take like action. a good plan. <laughs> no, the antidote to despair is action. Right. So, uh, you know, get involved. And that may be because it's a politicized issue. Well, get involved. Uh, make those kind of changes that you think are important on the sort of the political side. If your pastor or minister isn't talking about it, give a little poke. <laughs> you know, put it on the agenda for the, if he would for the next uh, sermon he gives or she gives. So there's you don't have to be too creative, but there's a lot, a lot of ways to help help with this issue. And I'll just go to it because I'm often asked, do I have hope? And that's a tough one. And I'll say yes, but I also want my two daughters to know that their dad tried. Mm. And I think if we all do that, we're doing our part. And there's another thing, and that is we all need a purpose. I've got one for you. Find your greater purpose and help address climate change. Yeah, no, definitely. And just to wrap up, I mean, that's a really good place to end because it's really inspiring. But is there anything that restaurateurs or chefs and operators in the food service arena can do to make a positive impact other than the things that you've already talked about? Well, maybe it's a dream. I'm not sure. But I think if the entire food system raise this issue of climate change and what it means to our food, basically tell this story, I think that would be powerful. Farmers, restaurateurs, retailers, wholesalers, climate advocates, food advocates, the foodies out there, you know, look at your next meal, consumer groups, and, kind of, and essentially raised our voices together for our mutual benefit, because we all eat, that is what I'm going to push for until I can't anymore. Thanks so much, Mike, for clearly explaining climate change and the menu in a way that's so relevant to our listeners. You can download this episode of Menu Feed and past ones on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.